there's some problems over here right now. We might have a hijack over here, two of them. And restore control. And now there's a new form of cyber matchmaking, college networking websites. Is this perhaps the next big thing? Same-sex couple will soon be able to head to the altar. The British Martin. people have voted to leave the Bolivia European Union. Is once again President of Russia. A major leap for mankind, said French President François Hollande. I am officially running. Can do for President of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. We expect to see the number of cases the number of deaths and the number of affected countries climb even higher. Here we are, folks, another episode of 21st Century Christian, where we endeavor to apply the truth of God's word to the issues which we face here and now in this hour, ever-changing 21st century. Now, first things first, I just want to say how privileged and honored I am to be officially working with under the banner of The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange is a podcast dedicated to looking at the world through gospel glasses. I was privileged to be on their their latest couple of episodes, 392 and 393, I believe. Um, So go check that out. Uh, thegreatexchange.ca or any of the major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, you name it. Um, 21st Century Christian is going to be available on those also under the Great Exchange banner. So big shout out to my friends, my brothers in Christ, uh, Maddie and, and Nick for all the work they do. And you know what, they're professionals and they've been doing this for a while and I'm super honored um, to be uh, working with them. Now, if you grew up in a Christian home, you might recall your parents being very particular about what movies and or TV shows you could or couldn't watch. I know for a lot of Christians, Harry Potter was a no-no. My dad did not like the Care Bears. He did not like the Care Bears. And when I was young, this frustrated me. I was always anti-authoritarian, and I think it's one of the reasons why I got in so much trouble um, later on in my life. But in any case, um, being told not to, to do something or not to watch something made me want to, to watch it even more. And so I wanted to watch all the movies I wasn't supposed to. My mom, my mom on the other hand, was far more lenient, and uh, she would always try and cover up for me. Um, but the ironic thing was that although my dad, he didn't like the Care Bears, the, the violent stuff seemed to be okay. I remember watching Die Hard for the first time, uh, Bond Marathon, Schwarzenegger movies, Rambo, First Blood, um, and we always enjoyed those. And so it was more like the magic thing that was the red flag, not not so much the AK-47s or what have you. But I think this is a prevalent attitude today. And I'm not saying yet um, what is right or wrong either way. I'm just commenting on what I what I think is is the landscape for Christians. Um, and so what I'd like to do with this episode, this podcast episode, is is take a look at the question of what can or or, or can I watch, or what should I or shouldn't I watch. And if I have a family, this applies to them also, right? If I have kids, what am I supposed to tell them? What should I let my children watch or be exposed to? And I mean, with the internet in the 21st century, like we've got, I mean, everything's online. I mean, and how many streaming services are on there? It's crazy. And it's not like Netflix is, you know, 
has some sort of, from what I can understand, Christian filter on there. And what qualifies as a Christian movie anyway? I know, I know some people would take a, a more hardline approach, uh, refuse to support any of these streaming services, and only watch what, what they call Christian content. On the other hand, you have others who seem much more, more open and make room for all sorts of popular media. So what's the difference here? What makes it okay for me and, 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 and not okay for you? Or is there a hard and fast rule for everybody? And so I think this is, is important, and it falls under the topic of, of Christian liberty, okay? What am I free to do as a Christian? What does it mean to be free in Christ? What are we free to do, not to do? And where does the conscience fit into all this? What is the conscience, after all? And what role does it play in Christian theology and, therefore, in our lives? So the first place that I want to go is to Paul's letter to the Romans. And I want to look at chapter 2 of that letter. Because I think it's entirely relevant to our discussion. And so here Paul says, and I'm, and I'm starting at verse 12. I'm starting at verse 12. He says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. Here he's talking about the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And then he goes on to say, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Listen to this. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So there's a lot going on there and it's kind of complicating. But basically what Paul's arguing in the first three chapters, so not just here, but the first three chapters of Romans, is that whether or not you're a Jew, whether or not you're a Gentile, whether or not you have the law of Moses in front of you, you are still accountable to God. You still have a moral responsibility. And if you don't obey God, if you refuse to accept that, to give God what he deserves, what he is due, then you are guilty. And the conclusion he draws is that Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter, we're all guilty of breaking the law because even if we don't have the Torah, right, the law, the instructions given to Moses by God for the people, if we don't have that in front of us, well, we still have that law written on our hearts and are therefore still accountable. We have that intrinsic moral awareness because we are created in God's image. And the reason I wanted to look at this passage specifically is because of how it deals with this idea of the, the conscience that everybody has, okay? Whether they're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. If you're a human being, you have this, this conscience, this moral awareness, this moral awareness. 
Our conscience is like a gauge or a meter, right? It might be described as a compass, a moral compass. And what often happens is when our compass points in, in let's say, this direction, and we go the opposite, it produces an effect. And this can often be a, a feeling of guilt or remorse. You see, what Paul says here is that their conscience bears witness and their thoughts sometimes accuse them and at other times even defend them. So when we are accused by our conscience, that's our moral compass or our gauge that we have. It's reacting to what we've done. It's producing an effect and it results in a feeling of, of, of guilt or shame. I watched this series, this HBO series not long ago called Chernobyl. It was about the nuclear power plant, which um, is in, in what is now, you know, Ukraine, what has always been Ukraine, but was at that time part of the Soviet Union, right? And they had this big nuclear energy plant. And in 86, it exploded, it erupted. And it had devastating effects. You know, the, the people who worked there and the surrounding communities uh, were just severely damaged. There was radiation everywhere. And for years, I think it was a restricted area, right? You couldn't go there. It was just brutal, the damage that this, this caused. When we disobey our conscience, there is serious fallout. But the thing about Chernobyl was there, there were warning signs. And the people, they ignored them. And it resulted in catastrophe. And when we ignore our conscience, when we ignore the warning signs, you know, the effects can be, can be devastating also. The effects can be devastating. But as it turns out, we aren't born with this perfectly aligned moral compass. As if to say, all you have to do is follow, like if you follow this guide you know, um, you, will, you will end up in the right place. You will, you will be saved, let's say, by f simply by following your conscience. Unfortunately, uh, the heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful. And our conscience gets bound to all sorts of ungodly things. I mean, we live in a world that's full of lies. And so if we live in this world that is full of idolatry and sin, how do we, and we are, you know, being bombarded by this from day one, you know, how how is it that we go about following our conscience and you know how can we how can we trust our conscience when it's been so skewed and and so perverted but the big question i want to ask is what what happens after we've been regenerated okay so once the holy spirit performs that work of regeneration and we are given hearts of flesh we undergo what i like to think of as a as a moral realignment now this this doesn't happen entirely overnight. There's a process involved here. When we are being sanctified, right? We are being 
We are growing in, in holiness. But after that, that moment of regeneration, which is followed by our faith, when we put our faith in Christ, there is something, there is a transformation that takes place. And one thing I've noticed is that my desires, for example, my desires to watch certain movies, let's say, or listen to certain music, that's a big one for me. It, it changed. Like, I didn't want to watch the same things. I didn't want to listen to the same things. There, there was a change involved. Now, what has happened here, what happens when we are united with Christ is we are freed from the bondage of sin. We are free from the bondage of the law. We are free from the bondage of death. If the Son makes you free, you, you shall be free indeed, it says in John 8, 36. And so this is what we call Christian liberty, Christian freedom. Now, the question arises then, what am I free to do now that I'm in Christ? Now that I'm free from the law, does that mean I can do whatever I want? What does it mean? And where does, where does the conscience come in? Because I still re retain that conscience, right? And I had this sort of broken moral compass, moral awareness before, and now I've been renewed, and my, my conscience has been realigned so where, where does it apply? The first thing to point out is that liberty does not equal license. We can't confuse liberty with license. So if we go to Galatians 5, for example, Galatians 5, and we go to verse 13. Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, you Christian, we're called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, he says, serve one another humbly in love. And listen to this. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's interesting, isn't it? So, so liberty doesn't equal license. In fact, you've been, you've been freed from, from the bondage of, of the law, the yoke of the law. But you've been freed for a purpose. You've been freed for a purpose, for a reason. You've been freed to do something. And this sort of reminds me of what Peter says in his epistle, his first epistle, 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And then listen to this that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's what it means to be free in Christ. That's when we are fulfilling our purpose. License isn't actually freedom. It's just a guise. It's an illusion. Because ultimately what you're doing is you just, you're just yoking yourself to sin again because you're following the, the desires of the flesh. That's what it is. In fact, if we read on in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says in verse 15, or verse 16, sorry, it says, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Right? So 
it's not a justification for just doing whatever you want. And I know we're jumping around here, but what I want to do now is just kind of go back to Romans because Paul develops this idea of the conscience later on in in the Roman epistle, particularly verse or sorry chapter 14, chapter 14 of Romans. In chapter 14, Paul is dealing with the relationship between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, so the non-Jews. Sometimes they're referred to as the Greeks. And what's going on is that the Jewish Christians had a lot of dietary restrictions, right? They had laws from the Old Testament that restricted them from eating certain foods and other things. And of course, this came into conflict with the Gentiles who who weren't familiar with these practices or who didn't think they had to follow these practices. And so the question is, well, who's right? And that's what Paul's dealing with here. We should note here, though, that Paul is has divided the people here into two groups. Right? You have the weaker and the, the stronger. And it's the it's the weak person. Now he's not saying they're a lesser Christian or anything like that. He's talking about he says uh, the person who's weak in in faith, and he says in, in chapter or verse one, sorry, he says, except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables, right? Um, so, for that individual, for that person who's at that place where where they feel like they they need to abstain from from this thing, they don't feel comfortable with this thing. That's that's a matter of their conscience, okay? It's a matter of their conscience, and so it's okay for them to avoid that thing. What he says in verse 5 is that each of them, each person should be fully convinced in their own mind. Okay, so that's a matter of the conscience. So what does that mean exactly? Well, if I think that I shouldn't eat that food, if I think that it's wrong for me to eat that food, okay, then it's wrong. But that doesn't mean I go and tell the other, my brother or sister over there who doesn't have a problem with it. That doesn't mean I, I tell them, well, you, you can't eat that. Paul's saying, no, no. If you want to, sure. If you're doing it in faith, then it's okay. Because he says at the end of, of 14, he says, if, if, if it is not from faith, it is sin. So if it's coming from this place of, of faith, then then that's between you and God, he says. What they can't do is they can't make that a law that binds, that is binding upon everyone else. And the same goes the other way. You know, don't make a big deal about it. If your brother doesn't want to eat something, don't make a big deal about it. And I think there are plenty of contemporary examples that we could use where Christians dispute over these things over which they shouldn't be disputing. Now, it might not be a food thing. It could be any number of things. Um, and we'll talk about uh, movies here. But just as a, you know, just a couple other examples, um, I was reading an article from a Puritan's Mind. A Puritan's Mind, it's a, a reformed um, site. And he has an article here on, on the matters of, of the conscience. And he gives some some examples. And one of them is, he, he talks about his um, friends who were married um, early on in their relationship and they were 
convinced that the Lord had brought them together and that they were to get married and how many people thought they were making a rash, unwise decision, and yet they were convinced, um, their consciences were clear that what they were doing was right, and he says that they were, um, that they've had a, had a happy, godly, uh, Christ-serving marriage ever since. And yet, surely there are going to be people in those situations, family members, maybe a pastor, who say that what you're doing is wrong, right? You shouldn't get married right away. I just heard recently talking to somebody, they were telling the story of their grandparents meeting. Um, He had just come here from Poland, and he heard about this train car of women having just arrived. He went to the train car. um, He met this woman. I think they had only known each other for a couple of days, and then they were married just like that. Um, And obviously, um, they stayed married. They had kids. Um, and he was he was there to tell the tale um, of their of their uh, coming together like that. So, I mean, obviously, there's instances where where things like that happen. So, are, is it for us? Is it for me to tell a young couple who is committed to one another, who loves one another, that they that they shouldn't get married? Now, maybe there's some evidence that it's just an unhealthy relationship and. And that, you know, as somebody who is observing this, you know, you can say, I don't, I don't think this is a good idea based on this or that. But I mean, if this, if this couple, couple is, is saying that they, you know, they believe truly that God has brought them together um, and that they want to get married and they want to serve the Lord together. I mean, it's not, it's not for an external voice, a human voice to to say that they can't do this thing. Another example would be clothing. You know what clothing is acceptable to wear um, just on a daily basis or to church. You know, there's lots of discussions about that and what Christians should or should not wear, what they must wear, right? It's one thing to give advice and say you should wear this, you should dress nice, but that you must wear this. Obviously, there's limits. There are things that are clearly inappropriate, but what is the deciding factor in that? It's not my opinion, is it? No, it's the Word of God. It's not for me, a man, to bind someone's conscience. Because what is what are, what are our consciences supposed to be bound to? This is the key question. And this is where it all sort of culminates. And and what I want to do is, is look at a, a statement that was made about this in the Westminster Confession of Faith, that great confession, that Protestant confession. And it has a chapter on on the conscience. So this is chapter, I believe this is chapter 19, and from paragraph 2 and, and 3, the Westminster Divines wrote this, that God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commandments out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. And the requiring of an an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty, liberty of conscience and reason also. They who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin or cherish any, cherish any lust, 
do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that, being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So basically what it's saying there is that, that God alone is the Lord of the conscience. God alone is the Lord of the conscience. And it is freed, okay, it is liberated from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commandments out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. Does that make sense? If your conscience isn't bound to the word of God, it's bound to the wrong thing. That's what it's saying. The Lord God is the Lord of your conscience. And he has given us his word as that binding rule of faith that we are to follow. And so going back to the analogy or the story of the, the marriage between this young couple, is there something in scripture that, that says uh, people um, shouldn't get married after only knowing each other for a short period of time? Where does it say that? It doesn't. It tells us to be wise and to exercise wisdom, yes. Um, but there's nothing unwise in and of itself for people to get married early on. Um, and Paul says, it is better to marry than to burn, right? Let them marry. This principle is summed up by Peter in Acts 5.29. It says, but Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than man. Right, they'd been brought before uh, the high priest. Um, they're saying, "We, you know, we, you know, we gave you strict orders not to teach Christ, <laughs> but you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you, you intend to bring this man's blood on us." But Peter and the apostles replied, "We must obey God rather than men." And this obviously is a a principal teaching of the Reformation, right? This idea that we must. We are beholden to God's word and not the word of, of the Pope. You know, Martin Luther was called before the, the diet at Worms and he was uh, told to, to recant his beliefs and those things which he had, had written. And then he gives that famous answer where he says, unless I am convinced by Scripture or plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Luther is saying, I don't care how much authority you say the pope has. I am bound. My conscience that compass, that regenerated, realigned, renewed compass that I have is bound to the word of my Lord, which he has given me to follow. It is a lamp and a guide unto my feet. I cannot forsake that. And guess what? Neither can you. And so your conscience too, Christian, is bound when you have to make decisions about what movies you can watch or music you can listen to. You know, some things are, are blatantly wicked and, and harmful that there, there isn't really 
room for uh, disagreement. Uh, for example, pornography. You know, the regenerate Christian yoked to Christ, filled with the Spirit, cannot say with a clear conscience that pornography is okay, right? And so there are certain things upon which we can all agree when it comes to entertainment. Um, there is some music which is just so blatantly filled with all sorts of filthy, ungodly uh, references. You know, especially those those times when the Lord's name is is cursed or spoken of in vain. You know, I think that that's another instance where we can really come in, come along in agreement and say, that's wrong, that's not good. And that's getting harder and harder to, to find content, um, movies and stuff that that don't take the Lord's name in vain. It's, it's just a popular uh, thing right now. It's like, I don't know. Um, I guess that just goes to show just how irreverent Hollywood is, right? You know, and the thing is, and I've said it before, like, I always wanted to be a filmmaker when I was younger, and I, I, I loved watching movies, and I've grown up watching movies, and I, I think that there's a lot of, you know, beauty that can be portrayed on, on screen, and and in-depth storytelling, and truth that can be conveyed in numerous ways, and and I don't want to disparage that you know, the exploration of the human condition or or what have you. Um, like, these aren't bad things, but um, when you have your your characters continuously spewing um, and, and cursing uh, the Lord and, and taking His name in vain, it's, I think we all hear that as Christians, and, and um, it, it doesn't sit well. It shouldn't sit well. And so my dad, for example, if he'll he'll watch something and as soon as, you know, the Lord's name is vain is is taken in vain, he'll he'll shut it off. You know, that's for him, for his conscience, that's that's the line right there, right? And so he he that's a, that's a rule for for him to follow. But what about swearing in general? Um, so for example, I used to have a. A mouth like a sailor, 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 <laughs> sailor, um, and I swore all the time, and every every third, second, third word out of my mouth was um, inappropriate. But I have, through the sanctification process, cleaned up my act, and I, I mean, there are times, there are instances, maybe where where I say something. I know there are times that it's not it's not a maybe. There are times when I, you know, if I'm in a situation, usually by myself. I, uh, you know, I, I let a word fly here that I, that I have to repent of, but you know what? I, I don't find myself wanting to swear more after watching a movie that has swearing in it. Do you know what I mean? And that's the tricky part because, you know, there, there are movies that are trying to depict real life and the characters that they are depicting aren't Christians most of the time. And it's unrealistic um, when people aren't, aren't swearing, right? Um, in a sense. Like, so it's not always, you know, obvious uh, what the best way to go about that is. Like, 
I guess one way to ask myself is if I if if I was making this movie, would I would, do I think that this would be an appropriate thing to have in that movie? If I was writing the script, would I would I would I in good faith um, would my conscience allow me to to depict this? And I don't like the answer to that question because it really convicts me and makes me think, well, you know what? If it were me, I, I don't think that it would be appropriate. But then it's like if I'm watching that movie or if I'm watching a movie that does depict that kind of thing, am I not going against my conscience on some level there? And we have to go back to the Word of God because it's not like the Word of God is, is silent. It doesn't speak about movies per se. But it does speak about what we see and what how what we what we focus on, how that impacts us negatively, right? So, for example, Jesus in Matthew six, the Sermon on the Mount, he writes that the the eyes, or he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is is diseased or unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You know, this the the eye has serves a moral duty for the Christian. The eye serves a moral duty for the Christian. The eye is is like a, a gateway, right? The eye is like a gateway. What we focus on what we set our sights upon, not just what we see, because we see all kinds of things all around us, but what we really focus on, right? What we watch, you know, that thing enters in through the eye and, and it has an effect on the soul. And it's like, you know, if you hold your finger up, you can sort of, you can either focus on your finger or the stuff in the background, right? You can kind of go back and forth, just like that's how a camera works. And so, you know, we have to determine what we're going to set our sights upon, what we're actually going to focus upon. And listen to what Jesus says here. He says, if the eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Think about that. If the eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. And so that is very, I think, important to understanding what uh, content we should be engaging with, what content we should be engaging with. Another um, really relevant text comes from 1 Corinthians, and, and the context here is, again, dealing with the Jew-Gentile relations and, and food and stuff like that, but the principle here stands. And, and listen to this. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 starting at verse 23. He says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Think about that. I have the right to do anything you say. Okay, sure. But, Paul says, not everything is beneficial. He said, you say, I have the right to do, to do anything I want, but not everything is constructive. And then in verse 24, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And so it's not just a matter of you, is it? There's more than just yourself to keep in mind. Let's say you have a family, you have young kids. You don't let them watch 
you know, R-rated movies. That's, you know, that's a principle you've set down. Okay. Well, why are you doing that? Is it necessarily because you don't think those are, are good movies? No, it's primarily because you think or know that those movies can have a negative impact on your children. And so I go back and I think, was my father being, you know, quote unquote, legalistic with his um, rules about what was allowed to be watched and what wasn't allowed to be watched? Yeah, maybe. Um, but I know that, that he was trying to do right. Um, I know that he was trying to do right. And I, I don't have any resentment for that at all. Furthermore, Paul says we, we shouldn't use our liberty, the freedom that we've been given by Christ, as a way to, to trip people up or to cause offense. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He says to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And so what Paul's doing there, saying there is not that he sins. He's not talking about sinning there. But he's talking about these matters of conscience. If he goes to the Jewish people, they have you know a certain set of rules. If he's with the Gentiles, they have some customs that they follow. He's like, okay, I'm free. So when I'm with the Jews, you know what? I, I, I won't eat this. Um, if I'm with the Gentiles, I'm okay to, to practice their, their customs. It's like going to another country, right? They have certain customs um, and, and traditions that are different, but that aren't inherently sinful, right? Um, and, and that's what he's saying here. And so the overarching principle that I want to give you is not a list of movies or a criteria for what qualifies as a Christian movie. Because here's the thing, it's not always obvious what a Christian movie is or, or even Christian music. I mean, I can listen to a classical, a piece of classical music that might not be, let's say, Christian per se. But is it sinful? So that, that, that's not always an easy thing to determine. And just because a movie is, let's say, produced by a Christian company or, or advertises itself as, as a Christian movie, does that mean it's good? Does that mean it's, it's good? I mean, there could be some serious problems in there, right? Um, so it's not always easy to determine that. So what I want to do, though, and, and I'm sorry if you, you know you thought that you would listen to this episode and have have a come away with you know sort of a hard and strict, hard and fast rule, but that would be sort of uh, contradicting the whole premise of the the, the freedom of the of the conscience, right? Um, but what I will do is, or what I'm trying to do is, is is feed you the scripture here because your conscience should be bound to scripture, and the more that you in, engage with scripture, the more that 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 is going to inform your uh, your perspective on things, um, and it's going to inform your decision making and your conscience. So what I want to do here is just leave you uh, with some more scripture that I think is relevant um, and should inform our decision making. So just going back to First Corinthians ten thirty one, Paul says here, 
He says, so whether you eat or drink, so this is his conclusion, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Do everything for the glory of God. And that's, you know, similar to what he says um, about the about faith in Romans 14, right? You know, he says that the kingdom is not a matter of, of food and, and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so we have to think about what that means too, to live in the Spirit and not in the flesh, not chasing after the desires and the lusts of the flesh. What does it mean to mortify the flesh, right? And the deeds thereof. You know, what is this movie I'm watching, the song I'm listening to, what is it causing me to think about? You know, is it causing me to think about those noble, pure, uh, good things? Those godly things? The, the things of, of the kingdom? Um, does it spur me on to seek the kingdom of God above all things and the righteousness of God? You know, God says to Cain in Genesis 4, he says, did you not know that that sin is crouching at your door? It desires to have you, Cain, but you must rule over it. You know, sin is out there. It's everywhere. And that's why we're to told uh, to, to practice wisdom, right? Um, to, to turn neither to the left nor to the right. In fact, if we go to the very first um, psalm, it says, Blessed is the one who does not, not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of, of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. In verse 3, it says, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked, it says. Not so with the wicked. And so we have to keep those things in mind when we're when we're uh, deciding what movies and, and shows and, and music we're watching or listening to. And we shouldn't ignore the conscience. Or we shouldn't ignore the conscience that has been bound to the Word of God when our conscience is seared and we're thinking to ourselves, you know what, I, you know, I really don't think I should be watching this movie. We shouldn't ignore that, you know. So that's important. And I think oftentimes, especially in this day and age, when we're just bombarded with visual media, um, and 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 sounds and sights that are anything but godly. It's it's easy to ignore our conscience because, as Luther said, you know that's neither safe nor right. And so this is the balance that we must strike. We have to be aware. We have to be cognizant. We have to be diligent. We have to be wise. We have to focus on those things which are good. And at the same time. And here's the, the other ditch that we must avoid, and that is telling other people what they can or cannot do specifically when it's not explicitly laid out in Scripture. And at that point, trying to bind their conscience to an external law. That is, that is a, an equally um, dangerous side of things, right? This is the relationship between antinomianism, right? That which is against the law and, and doesn't think that Christians should behave lawfully at all. And then there's legalism, which binds Christians to rules which are made by, by men. And so this is why the conscience is, is so important. And I think it gets ignored a lot of the time, but it has to be properly understood. And and it's it's going to have to play a role in your life. It does play a role in your life. In this chaotic world that we live in, you're going to be confronted with these decisions and these choices and, and when you have a family and, and all of this stuff. 
And so the conscience, this moral compass that God has given us, which is to be uh, realigned and, and made, you know, uh, remade, recast, um, to, to, to undergo this sanctification process, that's, that's a guide that God has given you, and it needs to be informed and bound by His Word. And if it's bound by His Word, if you're being filled, you know, if you're using the eyes that God has given you, um, to not just perceive uh, the word, but have the word um, sort of stare back at you and 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 read you and and saturate uh, your your soul, then then it's going to inform the decisions that you make, and your conscience is going to be seared when you are, you know, going against it and going against what you clearly perceive the word to be saying. You know, I remember reading um, Augustine's Confessions, you know, the, the old biography by the great church father Augustine. He talks about how, you know, they didn't have movies obviously then, but they had uh, gladiator arenas and gladiator fights and stuff like that. And, and his conscience was seared after he became a Christian. And he, he, he decided he couldn't go and watch these spectacles, these bloody spectacles anymore. And so this isn't just because movies are a fairly new medium doesn't mean this is a new issue. It just means that our, our conscience is being, uh, let's say, confronted by not so much new sins, right? But the sins are being presented in new ways, maybe is a way to look at it. And this is why the conscience is important, both then and now in this 21st century that we find ourselves in. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of 21st Century Christian. Um, I hope you tune in uh, next time for our next episode again. Thank you so much. Um, you know what? God deserves all the glory and praise and honor that the universe um, and we, his creation, have to offer. So let's let's give him thanksgiving. Um, let's thank him for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, our Savior. 